Hello, welcome back to Freshwater Perspectives, where today we are talking all things salamanders, including how they clone themselves, salamander brandy, and mythical fireproof salamanders. You're not going to want to miss this one. been two weeks it has how's it going i'm doing i'm doing okay we had to take last week off but i am invigorated i'm ready i have a great a great story to talk to everyone about today but as far as as far as what's happened between now and then surprisingly little (laughs) i've just been i've just been taing so that's that's going okay Mm -hmm. gotta you know it's that first couple weeks and no one's really talking in class so you're just trying to get everyone to loosen up a little bit so we're gonna see how that goes and are you still are you still wanting to teach for a portion of your career is this is this uh is your experiences solidifying your life choice yeah that's a good that's a great question i still really really enjoy teaching Mm -hmm. but i don't know if i'd want to do it at a huge university like an r1 university like auburn where Mm -hmm. In my opinion, they seem to care more about the research side than the teaching side. But hey, what's an that's... what's our universities, by the oh, way? Yeah, so there, I believe it's the NSF, NSF National Science Foundation, who gives out a vast majority of funding in the United States and even some internationally for science. Yes, for science, for scientific research. They so they get a lot of metrics for how much research money each of these universities spend. And then they rank them according to how much money these schools spend in the top. I think 120 schools are considered like the top tier. So those are R1 schools like the next are R2 and the bottom is R3. So Auburn is, I think the new rankings came out. They are exactly the hundredth top research institution in the country as far as, <laughs> as far as spending goes. So they're, we're Eagle. They're, <laughs> they're doing great They're You know, I think we went yeah. up like three spots from last year, but here we go. So, um, so yeah, so for people who don't know, like different, different schools have different, uh, for lack of a better word, I don't even want to say it priorities. Like there's many facets to a professor, right? So if you're in mm-hmm. a bigger school that, um, prioritizes research, like you'll be doing a lot more research. Whereas if you're in a smaller school, less money coming in for research, you'll be expected to teach probably quite a bit more if you mm-hmm. compare your workload to a different professor yeah um, and yeah and like yeah. you said these these are these are generalizations but very <laughs> yeah for the most part a lot of these top tier schools all the r1 schools they get a lot a lot more money than you would think based off of that research money coming in because when that research money comes in so universe so a professor at a university applies for research funding they get it and then the university just right off the top takes a certain percentage of that just right off the top so the university gets that it can be anywhere from 40 to 60 percent from what i've heard at some universities which is bananas yeah but yeah so you can get a million dollar grant but as a professor you're only going to see maybe half of that but yeah, yeah so, so anyway money so, yeah yeah so to circle back to your original Dude. question <laughs> um I I really do enjoy teaching. I think I'm going to just end up applying wherever because I can see myself working in the federal. I can see myself working 
private sector i can see myself teaching we're just gonna kind of have to see where that's it goes. the way to go yeah i'm not gonna close myself off to anything i remember i never thought t8 like teaching was gonna be my my thing you know and it still might be i think like it's there's merit to you going out and i think this is something lost in our field that like you going to get that um hands-on type of um type of experience and then coming back to university and and teaching um you know i think that's again lost um in our field because yeah it's like unless you're gonna be a professor like your students the people you're teaching they're they're going into government they're going into private field or or business maybe if you're in aquaculture right so um and if you're not in a like a research oriented university yeah your your students it's vastly different your experience as a professor to what they're going to be doing so if you can like go out for a little bit get that experience and come back in i think it's like maybe on your cv not valuable to like the person reviewing you but it, i think it's whole like wholly valuable to the people you're going to be teaching oh i agree 100 right yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean if you think of it i mean you kind of already said this but who better to kind of show you or teach you how to get the job that you want other than mm-hmm. you know besides a person that's already worked that job before so yeah well like so like business this is the total tangent but like business <laughs> you know for example they prize people who are like oh like you're gonna teach business 101 or like how to be an entrepreneur but like gosh you better get a person that's done it for 35 years in there mm-hmm. whereas it's you know some of our professors it's yeah it's like well you can go to you know the, <laughs> the federal sector I've never, I've never had a job there. And it's like, geez, yeah. like, well, how do you get in? You know? And mm-hmm. then, yeah. Um, now I forgot what I was even going to say, like in the beginning of this tangent. Oh, um, I do know. Remember. So I wasn't sure if I wanted to do teaching, but what really solidified, at least in my early career right now, why I didn't want to do teaching was because of TA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's one individual <laughs> that just broke my spirit specifically. They like came in one day for, um, <laughs> I taught a um a lab, the majority of the labs, and um <laughs> something like we just started and said, Can I go now or something? I was like, Oh man. Or oh, it was one like of you. Mm-hmm. And then they yeah, just 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 ragged on me the whole time, you know. And it's like, gosh, like if you don't want to be here, first off, you're paying for the course. So mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's good. Goodbye. Point. Like, right? Like <laughs> and then like yeah i mean i think you're always gonna get those students mm-hmm. but for me it's like i kind of live for the students that you can just kind of see that they really enjoy it yeah so i don't know no least... they're, they're definitely don't get me wrong i was yeah. being a little a little facetious but uh <laughs> no you're good i mean yeah, there's definitely <laughs> there's definitely students where you're you're in a lab or you're <laughs> giving a lecture and you can just tell like their eyes are glazing over and then mm-hmm. the second like for a lab for instance you're kind of let them do their activity they get it done as fast as possible and they're like hey is this good can i go now and i'm just like i guess yeah it's fine mm-hmm. i guess mm-hmm. so if you're fine with the grade you're gonna get that's fine yeah. it's so. like yeah everything's gonna be on the test okay yeah <laughs> like <laughs> that's my favorite <laughs> uh, like bring a recorder if you're so worried <laughs> and just <laughs> is this gonna be on the oh, test well i guess i can't put all of it on the test but it's all fair game that's what I, that's what mm-hmm. i usually say um mm-hmm. i yeah i'm just like it's fair game so it could be on the test i, don't know. I know i've been okay so before we get into talking about salamanders real quick i found this interesting 
news article that, that made national news, and I, I, I wanted your opinion on it, Riley. So um, it's being reported that the city of Buffalo, New York, hasn't been adding fluoride to its drinking water since June of 2015. And one of the first questions that you may be asking is how did, how did no one notice? And the water company had been pretty open in all of its yearly reports after 2015 and saying that the fluoride hasn't been added. However, this statement was accompanied by a, quote, fluoride restoration date, unquote, that kind of came and went multiple times. And these fluoride restoration dates even stopped appearing on the reports entirely in 2019. And so somehow, you know, this this just kind of made news in the, in the past couple of weeks. And according to the Buffalo Water Chairperson, it was because the water company was trying to do its homework, trying to do its due diligence. This, this is their side of the story. So prior to 2015, Buffalo was adding powdered fluoride to its drinking water, which is cost-effective, but really messy and potentially hazardous. And, and in 2015, the city received a grant to convert to liquid fluoride additions. But this was in the middle of the Toledo water crisis. So Buffalo reached out to local universities to gain insight on whether this transition could impact the quality of the water. And since the story has gone public, Buffalo Water has stood by their actions while also agreeing that they could have done a better job notifying customers. And I'll admit, I don't, I'm not sure if this is really headline worthy news, at least like national on a national level, but I really think it's, it's worth kind of talking about here. So for, for anyone who's unaware, fluoride is added to municipal drinking water as a means to battle tooth decay. Many dentists, doctors, and other health professionals agree that adding fluoride to drinking water decreases the number of cavities by as much as 40%. So this isn't a situation where Buffalo weren't sanitizing their water properly or anything, and I'm willing to give Buffalo the benefit of the doubt here. I was wondering what your thoughts were on this, Riley. Who? Um, yeah, it's a weird the, one. The whole time I was thinking about just, yeah, fluoride, and other than cavities because i knew that mm -hmm. um what else it was used for like if it would like affect the system mm -hmm. but it sounds like it's just for teeth huh as far as far as i could find yeah um i'm thinking so my position we have board meetings right and like mm -hmm. it that that information goes public and it's for reasons like this right because it's a little bit cumbersome in some um cases but then it it's like well like well when did this happen then you just point at it oh if they didn't do it every year that's interesting but they did do it in the I mean, even the epa too with um like regulatory like um changes too like there's just these massive comment periods for these these cases mm -hmm. to like everybody gets their um saying it and then it's documented and it's mm -hmm. it, it is important because it avoids things like this yeah because if they did do it at least once that's that's good right mm -hmm. um do they need to do it every year i don't know because if like if the the change was documented and then like you go forward into time mm -hmm. and that's so weird too sorry a lot of things coming through my mind right now no, but it's like because all out. like with that epa example i gave that's not for quote unquote human health either mm -hmm. um and, and like drinking water facilities, yeah, it's it's an interesting blend of private and public entities. So like you can have a you can have a public a, a public resource for mm -hmm. lack of a better word, like 
but it's a private company. Mm-hmm. So there's like that weird blend too, like energy, the energy field, drinking field, and some other utilities do this mm-hmm. quite a bit. I'm just not too privy on, on that, but like, I don't know. In short, yeah. I don't know. A lot of things I just brought up that I'm just spitballing again, man. I don't mm-hmm. <laughs> talk about what we're going to tell each other. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. The fluoride one. Yeah. If you like had a whole city of people with rotting teeth, like I could see where that's an issue, but yeah, I guess they can I... start right now that they like it's been raised. Maybe they can have a referendum to start again. Yeah. yeah, I I just wonder if there isn't enough information being reported yet as to Could be. why. So, again, when when the reporters started talking to Buffalo Water Water Board, I suppose it's called mm-hmm. Buffalo Water Company, they they kept saying like, "Hey, we, we you know we're just trying to do our due diligence here. We've been reaching out to universities, but at least the article that I was reading, they didn't mention what the findings were, and mm. they didn't seem to say like, all right, well." The reason we waited until now, or the reason we didn't say anything, because keep in mind, this is what, over seven years? Yeah. Seven and a half years that Hmm. fluoride hasn't been added, which is a long time. And I don't know. I just, yeah, I I think the communication was definitely lost, which to be fair, they admitted. Uh, But yeah, like we said, I'm not enough of an expert to really say maybe this is a huge deal and we, Mm -hmm. I'm just not enough of an expert to know it, but at least. Yeah, I don't know either. From my standpoint, it's it's definitely a, an issue that should have been addressed a long time ago. But I don't know if it's like national, like red flashing lights, big news, personally. Yeah, because that is weird if they're not disclosing that to their customers every mm-hmm. single year. Because mm-hmm. did you say like they disclose it once, right? And then they so they disclosed it every year until 2019, and then they until... stopped in 2019. And yeah, it would be in their yeah. yearly water report. Right, but then like they haven't been doing for X amount of time, so like why do yeah. it? We're still not assume, doing it, yeah. Yeah, it would make you assume that after 2019, they figured it out and they started adding it again, but it doesn't well, seem to be the case. here's a little nugget when things go wrong. I always like to think about like, well, what, <laughs> how do you fix it? So um, mm. maybe they can, it, the, the fix is as simple as, I don't know, letting people vote if they want that in their water, or I don't know if the gut, like a, water board has that authority um like a referendum i think they probably do like i have no idea no i don't hmm. know either yeah and i don't i don't know if this is something that's required to where it doesn't seem like the state government has stepped in mm-hmm. to to do anything or any other reg- regulatory body so yeah i'm not sure this is this is just a weird one i'll, I'll keep an eye on this one and We'll try to update you. That's a weird one. Update you later. But what do you think about what do you think about salamanders? It's it's shift gears entirely. <laughs> and just get on to the onto today's topic, which is salamanders. The salamanders are very weird. I know mm-hmm. nothing about them. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah. Okay. I've worked once. <laughs> Somebody's gonna laugh. I don't think they're they're no, I mean they're definitely not salamanders. Like the closest thing I've worked to them <laughs> is uh mud mud puppies. Oh. Okay. Yeah, the axolotls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We like um, we raised them in the the fish culture or like the hatchery that I worked oh, in. Really, super weird little baby yeah. guys. Like, <laughs> yeah, they're funky little critters. They, but they're they're not salamanders. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just thinking of slimy yeah. things with four legs. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm pretty sure. That I'm fairly certain they're closely related, and they Gotta may be salamanders. I'm not. 
as much as I do have some experience in herpetology, I'm not a herpetologist, so I can't I can't say I've memorized the taxonomy of them. But yeah, axolotls are freaky little critters. I know they're used in a lot of medical research because they can regenerate limbs pretty regular pretty readily. So there's been a lot of work with them on trying to figure out how they do it so we can get like nerve damage and stuff like that figured out. But Weird. anyway, let so, me go ahead. Oh, common go ahead. mud puppies are salamanders. Okay, I figured. Boom. Okay. <laughs> not, it's not that they're closely related. It's that they are related. Lar- <laughs> they large, are. They are them. <laughs> are large salamanders. Okay. Cool. Mm, yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. We got we got that figured out. So that's good. Yep. So let me go ahead and start by saying that salamanders and other amphibians as well as reptiles are very close to my heart. As I said, all of my research as an undergrad was in herpetology, which is, in case anyone didn't know, it's a study of reptiles and amphibians. And even to this day, I really can't help myself from looking under rocks for salamanders whenever I'm in a river or stream, really just like I did growing up back in my grandmother's backyard. But... We're we're all really familiar with salamanders at this point, I'm sure. They have a short lizard-like appearance, except they don't have scales, of course. They have soft, moist skin. Um, also, I'm going to be making a lot of generalizations here because there are, of course, exceptions, but everything I'm saying holds true for most species. Uh, they are also usually characterized by their slender bodies, blunt snouts, stubby limbs, and a long tail. There are approximately 600 living species of salamanders that spread across 10 families. Despite this high amount of diversity, salamanders aren't globally distributed. They can be found throughout much of the Americas, going as far north as southern Alaska and as far south as Bolivia. And they can also be found in most of Europe, Russia, China, and the very, very most northern parts of Morocco and Algeria. However, they are not native to the rest of Africa, the Indian subcontinent, or Australia. Lastly, about one-third of all salamander species can be found in the United States, specifically the Appalachian Mountain Range. All the way up in Alaska? Yeah, the very southern portion of Alaska. They get up they get up pretty high, which I wasn't aware of. I do know that there is a species of frog called wood frogs that can survive in sub-zero temperatures. So they can actually survive being frozen because they essentially create their own antifreeze in their blood by holding in all their salts so they kind of Weird. sit yeah they kind of sit in the state of almost like suspended animation during the winter they just allow themselves to be frozen and then huh. when, the, when yeah when the spring melt comes along they just kind of wake up and then they're all good to go but... i remember I, I was uh hunting as a kid at like mm-hmm. our family farm and uh in the, the field i found like a it's called a spotted salamander mm-hmm. like it's black with like yellow circles on it and i'm like <laughs> what is this like it's just in the middle like in the fall i was like ah! <laughs> like ran away from it <laughs> uh but anyways that's my yeah. i'm trying to think of all my other salamander interactions that's basically it for me not many um well i shouldn't say that maybe there are some in minnesota more than yeah no, there definitely there definitely are yeah, yeah so mm-hmm but most salamanders are only a few inches in length, much like that spotted salamander I'm sure you saw. It's probably a decent size. Spotted salamanders can get pretty big. But a f- select few, like the hellbender native to the Appalachian Mountain Range, can reach almost three feet and weigh over five pounds. Now that's Stop definitely, it. Yeah, Yuck. that's definitely a big salamander. But, Riley, that is nothing, and I mean nothing, compared to the giant Chinese giant salamander, which can measure up to four and a half feet long 
and weigh a whopping 110 pounds. No, I think I've mm -hmm. seen a video of that. I'm looking up Hellbender mm -hmm. right now. They're cool. They're they are also critically endangered Hellbenders. There's a lot Hellbender. of research around Hellbenders. Really? Yeah, unfortunately. Ugh. Okay, what was the other one? The, no, the, the... Chinese giant salamander. Okay, okay, okay. Thank you. Hopefully mm -hmm. it popped up right. Google knows <laughs> now that I'm looking at it. Holy moly. Yeah. Oh, Jeez. yeah. So... Like a, just a rock. It looks like a rock on its head. Oh, yeah. That's Ugh. natural camouflage, right? I'm sure I'm sure my intro at the beginning of this podcast really grabbed everyone's attention. And I promise we'll get to, to all that craziness and more. But I really wanted to set the groundwork for Salamander Basics in the hopes of educating our water audience like we really like to do here. And like I said, salamanders are an absolutely wild group of organisms. And there's so much I could talk about, but I, I try to keep myself to our usual time frame here today. <laughs> so, salamanders play an important part in a healthy aquatic system, usually by keeping nuisance insect species like mosquitoes and other parasites in check, while also serving as a staple of many aquatic and semi-aquatic animals' diets. Salamanders can be impressively effective and honestly just adorable predators and have pretty sophisticated <laughs> suite of senses that help them navigate their day-to-day -day life. Salamanders have a strong sense of smell that is the major sense in regards to maintaining and recognizing territories, sensing and recognizing predators and potential mates, but is thought of a secondary to sight in regards to identifying prey. Their eyes are best thought of as adapted for nocturnal hunting and being amphibians. They can, of course, see pretty well on land as well as in the water, but are generally regarded as nearsighted while on land, except terrestrial species, which can obviously see a lot better on land. Interestingly, mm -hmm. salamanders' eyes, yeah, I don't, I don't know how they figure all that out, and I don't, I don't think anyone needs that level of detail, but I thought it was interesting. I didn't really want to leave it out. <laughs> salamanders, so I'm, I have still the giant Chinese salamander and uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. like so it's just behind my screen is like all the salamanders and man like they, they look like the connection between the things that were in the water you know like you ever see those dias dinosaurs diagram dioramas mm -hmm. and like it's mm -hmm. like at some point there was one that just like was sitting like with its head out like they look like the link I'm gonna <laughs> So. Well, I mean, if you if you think of the, I don't want to nerd out here, but if you think of the evolutionary tree or just like the chordate tree, right? So vertebrates, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, they're 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 right in there between fish and, and mammals. So you know, they, there you they couldn't they couldn't really decide between where they wanted to be. Evolutionary, but but oh, okay, again, a side note: you said this was like one of your like one of the reasons that you got into science was herpetology. Yeah. So I want to challenge you to marry what you research right now with like some kind of herpological um is that a word some kind of amphibian <laughs> oh geez uh so for anyone who doesn't know my my current my current work is almost solely with algae freshwater algae mm -hmm. and cyanobacteria yikes all right i'm gonna go out on a limb here so a lot of cyanobacteria are very toxic they can they can produce toxins that are pretty harmful for for many people just mm -hmm. just go ahead and look up the toledo water crisis in lake erie and we'll get into a lot of salamanders can be very okay. toxic i mean a lot of amphibians in general just oh. look at the poison dart frogs right is that where they get their toxins from it's from eating 
Not from algae, but poison. <laughs> I do know poison dart frogs. So if you get a domesticated, I don't know why people do this, but you can get a domesticated poison dart frog. And as long as you don't feed it what it normally eats, it can't become poisonous. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Yep. Okay. See, there yeah. we go. Yep. Trying to trying to teach you a little thing, uh, thing or mm-hmm. two here, Riley. But talk going back to salamanders and their and their crazy eyes. So salamanders' eyes are able to see ultraviolet wavelengths, which is believed to give them a really big advantage when searching for prey, as well as identifying potential mates, because salamander skin is apparently biofluorescent, meaning they glow slightly or have different patterning when under UV light, and it's really noticeable in the dark. And this is a pretty new field of research in general that has also been looked at pretty extensively in sharks, in case you didn't know. They can see UV light. Yes. Isn't they that weird? See just just the just the tiniest little bit of the ultraviolet wavelength. Isn't that weird that like other animals can see things different to us? Mm-hmm. Here's a theory of mine about mm-hmm. humans. Okay. okay. Um, you know how everyone has their favorite color? Mm-hmm. I think that's because <laughs> it's the best, like everybody can see wavelengths differently and like mm-hmm. your favorite colors is what comes in your eyeball the best <laughs> that's why like it pops more or something oh uh, i see, you what, see you're what i'm saying, saying. so I... like <laughs> huh yeah if i'm see? honest i never thought about this for a second in my life because but... also a second follow-up to that is like is my blue the same as your blue you know what i'm saying we'll never that know i have heard that i have heard <laughs> someone say probably in college before see but as far as your favorite color is your favorite color because it probably just stands out more because you can see it for some reason that that wavelength just stands out to you a bit more i don't know see that's interesting see but then yeah step further is like yeah that my blue is my blue and it's my because of the wavelength yep I'm, Mm -hmm. i'm taking a step further than that just normal college talk that you get there's definitely a thing rachel and i argue constantly it's usually like in that dark green to like grayish like also dark blue area you know what i'm saying like where those three colors kind of meet mm-hmm. and rachel will be like oh like can you hang my blue shirt and i'm like you don't have a blue shirt you have like a gray shirt <laughs> and we'll just kind of go back and forth on that and i'm like to me it's definitely blue but it hurts definitely gray but I feel like this is gonna be your fight on your wedding day together <laughs> but I, I can't handle hand you a dark blue shirt because you don't have one <laughs> She just breaks. <laughs> that's it. That's the like, we're not. That's the straw. Oh, God. All right. Okay. Getting back to salamanders Anyways. and their other their other senses. We talked about their eyes and their nose and stuff. Uh, salamanders aren't really believed to have great hearing. They seem to lack a lot of the more sophisticated structures that allow animals to hear a wide range of frequencies. It is generally believed that they can sense low frequency vibrations that are likely used to detect incoming predators. And lastly, as vocalizations go, most salamanders don't make any noise at all. Again, most of their signaling is either visual or olfactory. That being said, some species can produce a popping or clicking sound, and the California giant salamander can make what some people call a barking or rattling sound that can be quite noticeable. And it seems like this is something that is pretty understudied in general so it's entirely possible that most if not all salamanders do in fact produce some sort of noise or vocalization but it just hasn't been detected or observed yet 
One 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 fascinating thing about salamanders, aside from seemingly everything, is believe it or not, how they breathe. Salamander breathing varies from species to species and throughout their life cycle. Larval salamanders, which are solely aquatic, breathe through a set of feathery external gills like the axolotls that Riley mentioned earlier. In adults, it can be through gills still if they are retained, as well as through lungs and terrestrial species or through their skin. Breathing through their skin means they have a greater surface area with which to absorb oxygen directly into the bloodstream, but also means that salamanders that breathe this way need to stay moist and can also easily absorb toxins through their skin. This is why if you're out looking around for salamanders, you should try your best to refrain from handling them too much as they can dry out and the oils from your hands can clog their uh, the pores in their skin, making it difficult for them to breathe. So don't be don't be handling salamanders too much, Riley. I did know about the breathing through skin, mm-hmm. but like the physical process to breathe through your skin. So is it exchanging right into the bloodstream, or are there like lung-like structures under the skin? So I'll admit you know I did saying? not I did not research that extensively. I'm thinking it's bloodstream, it and then seems, it just brings it to their yeah. It lung. seems like it goes directly into their bloodstream. And mm-hmm. if I had to guess, it's probably through a set of very fine blood vessels, almost like the, uh, what's the word? Lamellum. There's like, huh? Lamellum, like in fish? Yeah. Is that the yeah. word? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What the, that's, that's right near the, the, their, their gas bladder or their air bladder, their swim bladder. There it is. Their swim bladder. They have that, that kind of net, that networking of fine blood vessels. Oh, no, no, that's there. not Lamellum. That's the Reedy Malabre. That's it. Reedy yeah. Malabre. The wonderful, the Rhett yeah, yeah the, the wonderful structure. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's been a decade since I thought of that word, mm-hmm. but holy moly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's something like that. I assume it's just, anyway, I'm pretty sure yep. it's going straight from, it's just diffusing directly into their blood vessels. Makes sense. Yeah. Now... In order to defend themselves from predators, some salamanders, like the tiger salamander and the red eft, are poisonous and are often rejected by predators if they ingest them. These salamanders, particularly the red eft, are brightly colored. So if you see a bright orange salamander with red spots, that is a red eft. Do not touch it. On a tangent, the red eft is actually a really cool little salamander because it's actually, it's like the transition stage in the life cycle of a red spotted newt. So a red spotted newt goes from solely aquatic to solely terrestrial to solely aquatic again. And the red eft is the name of that transition? Yeah, it's that terrestrial form. Look it up. It is brilliantly orangely orange colored with these little red spots. And it is Wait, so if you pick one up, will you get poisoned by touching it? By th- it biting you it's... or what? I think so. It's I think it's just on their skin, and I think it's just more of like a rash, like a burning sensation, almost like poison ivy. Uh, like it's Weird. not going to kill you. Yeah, if that's what you're asking. Um, kind of. Meanwhile, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> meanwhile, the fire salamander got a little more creative with its defensive strategy. It has a ridge of glands down its spine that can squirt toxic fluid at its attacker up to a distance of thirty inches. It just kind of creates this this pressure difference around those. It just kind of like pops the those glands and it just like squeezes them really hard. Like if you're flexing your back muscles. Fine. 
So it's a ridge of glands along their spine. It's kind of like in their skin. They just kind of like clench up really hard and it just kind of pops pops out some toxic like goo. Sprays from one point or all like down? I think it's, I guess it could be along the whole yeah. spine. If, if it, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure how much you think you're going to get these it. questions, man. Yeah, I really didn't. <laughs> I'll admit, I didn't. <laughs> So can't just right. say these words and not have a follow up. <laughs> yeah, they're spine. <laughs> I I know I always know that I have to whenever I'm I'm writing this my script, I try to think of the questions you're gonna ask. And nine times out of ten, you never ask the questions I think you're gonna ask. <laughs> uh that's just me. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. We'll have to do like a blooper reel of all the questions I thought you were gonna ask. <laughs> just how you just didn't. Oh, gosh. Oh, man. But all right, so we got through all the boring basics, and now we can get to the really crazy and fun stuff. So most salamander reproduction and growth is pretty straightforward. A vast majority of salamanders reproduce in a fairly normal way. The male will lay down a pack of sperm called a spermatophore, and the female will deposit that spermatophore in her cloaca and fertilize her eggs internally. The eggs are then attached to a hard substrate like a rock or a stick or a log where the eggs can be, can't be buried by runoff, but also stay moist. After some time, the larval salamanders will hatch and they just kind of do their thing. However, <laughs> in a select few species of salamanders and a few other amphibians, this can all happen a little differently. Like salamanders belonging to the genus Ambistoma, which include the Jefferson, the blue spotted, the smallmouth, and the tiger salamanders. This genus includes some species comprised entirely of females. Yes, you heard me correctly. Not a single male exists in this group. These salamanders reproduce via a strategy called gynogenesis. Have you heard of gynogenesis before, Riley? Or parthenogenesis, perhaps? Yes, not gynogenesis, parthenogenesis, yeah. Okay, we'll get to that. Parthenogenesis is the catch-all term for all Mm -hmm. of these more specific terms that I'm going to break down. So in gynogenesis, a female mates with a male from another species, which would usually produce a hybrid of the two parent species. But for ambistoma, the male sperm merely stimulates the egg to begin maturing, and you will not find a single drop of of the suspected father's DNA in that daughter she is an exact clone of her mother there are some cases in which a small fraction of the father's dna can be incorporated into the daughter but not that usual 50 50 split that we would expect to see in usual sexual reproduction this is often referred to as kleptogenesis as the female is air quotes stealing some of the male's dna to introduce some much needed diversity into the population what do you think of that interesting because mm-hmm. like so the <laughs> the sperm just like it flips the switch yeah it just kind of wakes no... it up huh yep then why have sperm in the first place man you know <laughs> <laughs> you know what some people will will agree riley why why indeed just feel some like that's like, yeah it just kind of wakes it up and it yeah. just it just doesn't do anything but yeah or they have to borrow sperm from a different species you said yes yes so they now that's they a will... weird one too because don't yeah. you have to go through the process of mating mm-hmm. so yep. why not just mate with your own species i just this yeah. these are all great questions that i don't have the answer mm-hmm. to right well now. i mean like yeah depending on how old that species is they, they yeah 
persisted oh, we'll in that. that. Don't worry. Yeah, right? We'll, oh, gosh. We'll get to that. Don't worry. There's a reason. There is a reason. I did, I did expect that question. Don't you worry. <laughs> this is... <laughs> That's there's an interesting also, one, yeah. Yeah. So there, there's also a third form of this reproductive strategy called hybridogenesis, which is believed to be observed in the Jefferson salamander. So this one is a bit more complicated, so stay with me here. But okay. let's say we have a female salamander of one species and a male salamander of another species. So two different salamanders from two different species. Once the two mate, they'll produce a hybrid offspring of the two parents. Nothing crazy there, just exactly what we would expect. An exactly 50-50 hybrid of the parents. Now, let's say this hybrid female back crosses with one of the parental species. This should again create an offspring that is a that is a perfect hybrid of the parents, 50-50 split. But instead, the offspring genome only resembles that of the mother again. It's worth noting that this phenomena, that these phenomena in general are actually pretty common in lower level life forms. So this this parthenogenesis in general that we're talking about. Again, this is something that's pretty common in, in some plants, algae, water fleas, worms, and even some insects, but it's pretty rare in vertebrates. And this whole thing in general is just, just fascinating to me, which is, I think we'll, we're probably going to talk about this for a little bit here, but it just kind of tickles that, that basic ecology part of my brain that says this really shouldn't be happening in such complicated organisms. And parthenogenesis, and again, like I said, this is it's just a catch-all term for when a mother essentially produces a clone of herself, comes with some innate drawbacks that refer to what is called Muller's ratchet. This theory was coined by Joseph Muller back in 1964 and describes these type of situations. In cases where organisms are cloning themselves, any potentially harmful mutations that pop up in the gene pool accumulate at a much higher rate than usual thus ratcheting the species closer and closer towards extinction. This is also referred to as a genetic bottleneck, as the diversity of the gene pool isn't high enough to avoid these deleterious genes. However, researchers believe that ambistoma salamanders have been doing this for the better part of 5 million years, way longer than any modeling would suggest. So anything else you got you got to add on this, Riley? No, I don't. Uh, that's... Um... <laughs> having so many different i mean it i guess it makes sure that like you always have a way to reproduce right mm -hmm. so the salamanders yeah. will live on maybe if that can I'm... be like the catch of our uh this this uh episode yeah this is now this is pure conjecture for me so i'm just gonna go ahead and, and say that outright i have nothing to back out of what i'm about to say so i think a reason that this could be you this could be kind of helpful is that in general, again, generalizing here, this is also backed up by nothing. I do know that some amphibians and even just some species in general, if you're thinking about the whole mating process, uh, actually, that doesn't make any sense either because they still have to mate. I was going to say like mating and kind of courting takes up a lot of energy. So not having males, you don't have to worry about that, but they still have to court. So it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, to get the but... sperm to not be a part of the reproduction. Yeah, just clone at that point. Yeah, but they still need the the sperm at, at at least like that little bit just to kind of get it started. Huh. Mm. But either way, yeah. so like I said, in some cases that kleptogenesis, they can incorporate the male's genome just a little bit. So it's working at like the perfect kind of base level efficiency to where they're not they're not accumulating any of those harmful genes. So it's <laughs> 
it's like through the the span of time they figured out just the right amount you know like what's the mm -hmm. least amount to keep the genetic diversity going yep otherwise How efficient can we get this to where we just need just the just that perfect amount of diversity exactly like we've been doing this for a few thousand years without any sperm got a little weird <laughs> just gotta just tweak it just a little bit just yeah. <laughs> just no, a tickle it's, yeah it's <laughs> absolutely crazy to me that's weird yeah so now we're gonna shift gears entirely to just a totally different topic which is mythical salamanders of all kinds all right this is this is gonna Stop get it. i promise you you're gonna learn more than you expected from this little section okay. So salamanders of all kinds have been mentioned by several different cultures going as far back as the ancient Greeks who believed that seeing a salamander meant that rain would soon fall. <laughs> yeah, this is, <laughs> yep, don't worry. It's going to get even crazier. I than thought that, it was going to be like, oh, you're going to get a million bucks or something. Mm -hmm. like, it's going to nope, rain today. Yep, it's going to rain soon. <laughs> oh, it's going to get, it's going to get wild, wilder than that. I promise. Now, if you kind of take a second and think, salamanders are often referenced in relation to fire for some reason. And this connection to fire is believed to arise from salamanders tending to live in and around fallen trees and rotted wood. Therefore, when the wood was placed on the fire, out would crawl the poor salamander. This led many people to believe that salamanders were born from fire and were even immune to it. Mm. Pliny the Elder, for example, who is just a hilarious example of just terrible naturalism if you just read some of his works he's he's hilarious um Pliny the elder writes that quote a salamander is so cold that it puts out fire on contact unquote <laughs> yeah the salamander's ability to put out fires was repeated by saint augustine in the fifth century and isidore of seville in the seventh century many mythical characters such as prester john who was said to have ruled over a lost christian nation was said to have had a fireproof robe made entirely of salamander skins. It was also believed that salamanders could poison the fruit of an entire tree simply by coiling <laughs> around it. Uh, salamanders were salamanders in general were such a revered and sometimes feared creature that King Francis I, who ruled France from 1515 to 1547, used a salamander in flames as his personal emblem. I think we need to bring those back. Personal albums like Cygnus, family, like family crests, crest. all of yep. it. But yep. <laughs> all right, I'm I'm calling dibs on salamander. Mm -hmm. um, and salamanders have also been connected to fire much more recently, as in the book Fahrenheit 451, where salamanders were depicted on the firemen's coats, and even the trucks themselves were called salamanders. And even more recently, a fiery salamander was depicted in Disney's Frozen Two. Did you see Frozen Two, Riley? I don't. Think so oh you didn't it wasn't as good I saw as the first frozen one, one. It wasn't as good as the first one in my opinion i read fahrenheit 451 and i don't remember the salamander it was a long time ago unfortunately mm -hmm. there's also a movie adaptation they did of fahrenheit 451 it might be on netflix still i haven't looked i didn't check to see if it's i think i saw the first 10 minutes of that movie yeah it was, and for it was some right. reason, I shut it off. It wasn't because, yeah, I just don't remember. I think I was just going to bed. But yeah, I mean, I'll admit it's a pretty faithful recreation of the book, but sometimes that's not as fun because you know exactly what's going to happen. So, oh, right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Matt. Yeah, no, it was, it was good. They did a good job. But uh, uh, so switching cultures a little bit, 
Uh, salamanders also believed to have inspired the kappa of Japanese mythology. Kappa are often depicted as a green human-like creature with webbed feet and a turtle-like shell on its back. In Japanese mythology, kappa have been known to engage in harmless hijinks to outright kidnapping and drowning people who get too close to its home. <laughs> yep. And in order to gain favor with local kappa, Japanese villagers would often make offerings of cucumber, which are kappa's favorite food among Japanese eggplant, soybeans, and kabocha squash. If anyone were to have found themselves confronted with a combative kappa, it was believed that one could evade capture by being overly polite, in which the kappa was obliged to return. If that didn't work, kappa were apparently very fond of sumo wrestling, so you could just sumo for your life. And the TV show River Monsters with Jeremy Wade devotes an entire episode to describing and uncovering the uh, identity of this mysterious creature. I think that is probably the best folklore I've ever heard because mm -hmm. to disarm your assailant with flattery is, <laughs> I think. Yeah, and... And so just be nice to everyone you see. It's like yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's mm -hmm. it's a nice harmless one. And mm -hmm. some depictions of the kappa, they have a little a little bowl on their head full of water. So another strategy. So the idea with being overly polite is you would be overly polite and bow a lot. And if you bowed really low, the kappa would bow in return, and all the water would spill out of its bowl. And apparently, if the water spilled out of its bowl, it had to sit there and hold still until the water bowl was filled back up again. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like the cucumbers too. Yeah, like, well, what's its favorite cucumbers. food? Like, obviously, cucumbers. A healthy snack. Obviously. It's mostly kids. water. Yeah. <laughs> like calories, right? You're not cheating or anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, sticking, sticking with just kind of, you know, keeping with the mythology, uh, Carl Linnaeus who coined the binobial nomenclature that taxonomists use today. For example, Homo sapiens. So Homo being the genus and sapiens being that speci that species term, specific epithet. Uh, and Carl Linnaeus is widely regarded as the father of taxonomy. He actually described many salamanders and actually perpetuated the idea that salamanders were immune to fire. We're, we're getting towards the end here, Riley. Got anything else to add? I mean, you can't, you can't be accurate on everything, right? So... <laughs> Linnaeus, you're fine in my book. Yeah, we'll we'll give him a pass on that one. He did a lot. Think of all the weird things. stuff I believe in, you know. You know, that's a when you put it like that, it's a great point. Ten years, you're gonna find out. And you're like, ugh, jeez. So, like I said, so we're we're getting close to wrapping things up, but I didn't want to forget about the salamander brandy, which I mentioned earlier. Yes. So it's been reported by several different media outlets that a brandy recipe from the Middle Ages incorporates salamanders as a means of imbuing the spirit with several stimulating effects, such as eye-opening hallucinations, but most importantly, sexual arousal, of course. Yes, this was apparently used as an aphrodisiac because, of course, it was. That Yep, that's just how it was back in the Most day. Most are, Middle Ages. yeah. Yep, well, of course. And in a more technical sense, in case you're wondering... Salamanders were submerged in the alcohol, and when they were submerged, they would, of course, be incredibly stressed, and they would instinctively release their toxins, which would, in turn, infuse the brandy. The accuracy of this folktale has been widely debated, and it's much more likely that it was actually used as a way to poison people. So you would just swap their brandy out with some salamander brandy, and then they would just kind of get knocked out or incredibly Jeez. excited. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> You weren't sure. Hello! <laughs> a, bit, a bit of Russian roulette there, you know? Jeez. So, uh, <laughs> with that, 
I think we've just about covered everything about salamanders. The only thing I left out, which I did intentionally to save until now, is their conservation status. I know I don't want to end things on a somber note, but, you know, uh, almost a third of all salamanders are listed as critically endangered with habitat loss, disease, and deteriorating water quality being listed as the main causes. Again, I didn't really mean to end things on a somber note, but we talked about how crazy, cool, and culturally rich these critters are. And I won't end it on a somber note because on top of all that, salamanders, like I mentioned earlier, are being used in many different fields of medical research due to their ability to regenerate limbs. This has led major, this has led to major advancements in the research on tissue, organ, and even nerve repair after serious trauma or disease. Now, that's just about everything you need to know about salamanders. Anything else, Riley? Limb regeneration. Mm-hmm. Man, will we ever see the day where like a limb can regenerate? That's just like that's that just right up a sci- sci-fi book, book, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh yeah, you just kind of like submerge your whatever's left in like a tank of goo and just kind of wait for a mm-hmm. couple weeks and just pop out and you got a new hand. That would be that'd be wild. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Ooh. Yeah. yeah, but okay. Anyways, All right. Um, yeah. Good job. Thanks. Interesting. This, I'll admit, I thought I knew a lot about salamanders. I knew about the fire stuff. I knew about the limbs. I knew about their sexual reproduction and how weird that can be. Did not know anything about the mythology. I did watch that that River Monsters episode with Jeremy Wade talk about the kappa. Did not know anything else about or brandy, of course. So this was yep. I learned a lot about this as well. So crazy. Yep. And don't forget, if anyone else is interested in reading anything else about salamanders or other aquatic critters and just freshwater stuff in general, don't forget to head over to freshwaterperspectives.substack.com. That is where we've moved all of our written material over to. And if you have any comments, questions, concerns, or ideas for a new podcast, don't forget to send your ideas to fwperspectivespodcast at gmail.com. All right, Riley, see you next week. See you.